That's our foundation. He is risen. Hallelujah. Jesus is Lord. That means he's God. That's the proof the resurrection has shown us. And we know also because of the testimony of prophets of old and apostles who came after that this happened by a blood purchase. That Jesus died shedding blood to buy the universe for God from the devil who had stolen it. And this transaction is a little bit less like well, fair trade for the devil, a little bit more like conquering. Uh, uh, but for our sakes, we are redeemed by this empty tomb that John and Peter ran toward and found empty. You got to believe that Saul of Tarsus checked it out at some point when he was trying to crucify Christians. He was going to definitely have looked around Jerusalem for anything he could find to use in his arguments. So from that empty tomb, though, Peter runs all the way to his grave in Rome at the hands of Nero Caesar in 67-68 AD, and Paul likewise, beginning at Damascus after he is converted by an appearance of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He also runs all the way to Rome, eventually to die in 67-68 AD at the hands of of Nero Caesar, who will himself die about a year later, uh, leaving John the last apostle uh, at the island of Patmos to write the book of Revelation. More about him in, in the coming weeks. But So the idea here then is that the posture of Christianity is running toward the tomb. Okay, This is what I want you to embrace as an idea. Uh, that our life together as Christians is about dying. That's why we're here. We're not here to get healed. Does God answer prayer? Yes, he does. Does he send healing? Yes, he can. Will he always? Well, what kind of healing are you asking for? And what kind of motives are you after? Are you going to just waste more time on yourself? Why would he answer that anyway? That's a long story. That's like an hour-long sermon on prayer. But before we get to prayer, we have to remember that we're all going to die. And we already know this. So when Hezekiah is sick and prays that he might not die, is it good, is it bad? That's an interesting story. Uh, For our parts, we're running toward the grave no matter what, though. Like we just aren't going to get around that. You might get healed at 50 and 60 and 70, and Jesus says at 80, okay, it's time. And you got to be like, okay, it's time. This is what I've been planning for. That's Christianity. And the clinging to this life as if I can't let go, I got to do more. That's not Christianity. Now, you can be a Christian and be deceived and tempted by such things. Don't get me wrong, but that's not what we're about, right? That's not what we teach. We teach that we're all running toward the tomb because the tomb is empty and it can't contain us. Now, what I want to do with that idea now is transition it from stories about very famous individual people in the New Testament to stories about groups of people in the New Testament gathered at certain places. We tend to call those groups of people gathered as Christians in certain places churches. Now, I could spend 10 hours on the word church trying to deal with everything it means in Lutheranism and the history of Christianity and how this building's not a church. But we are the church for sure, right? That, that sounds confusing, though, if I say that, yeah? This is the challenge with the word church. 
But let's, for our purposes, then see that the way this word's used in the book of Acts is there are Christians in a place gathered together. That's a pretty good definition, really, all the way through of the word church. Christians in a place gathered together, they tend to be gathered around the word of God. My hope then, as we look at these churches gathered around the word of God in the next couple of weeks and the the rest of this series, is that as you've been inspired a touch by St. Paul's life and St. Peter's life, now we become inspired to touch about our life as a congregation together. So you've got your journey, your walking on through the world out there every week, and then you're coming back here for pit stops and fill-ups. And that's exactly what this place is for. But then what are we doing as we're here being filled up? Where are we going together? How does church look And to be really frank, like a major part of the belief about church in American Christianity is the belief that it's a time-limited reality. That is, every church is going to die. You got to plant new ones, they say, because if you don't, you won't have any. That's the running theory right now. And I hear it from Lutherans too. Uh, My favorite response to this theory is is a meme I saw once, actually. It had a church growth guru saying this comment about, you know, the churches planted by St. Paul all died, and and you had to re-missionize. And and then there's this, like, picture of the bishop of the Syriac Orthodox Church of Antioch, who is the bishop of the congregations in Antioch, who's been in a line of bishops congregating in Antioch since Paul was there. Paul didn't plant that one, though, so I guess the guru's kind of right, maybe. Except, you know, there's Ephesus. And so churches can live until Jesus comes back. And I want us to remember that here at St. Paul, because we just came out of a time period where for 20 years you weren't so sure you're going to make it. That was kind of the dominant spirit was, uh, uh, I don't know, right? Let's do some more fundraising. And it just went slower and slower and weaker and weaker all the way. And what was most valuable, would have been most valuable at the start of all of that, would have been for a clear belief among you, voices among you saying, no, the church can't close. That's not really even possible. We'd all have to quit. <laughs> you know, we have to stop trying. Yeah? Um, and uh, to be fair to you, St. Paul, someone also probably should have said the the problem right now is not the church, it's the school, and you got to just close the school, and then you'll be able to handle the church. And if you had done that in 2001 or 2003, you'd still be downtown. We'd still be downtown. I believe that. I'm not holding grudges. I don't even want to get into it, really. What I want you to see is that the church downtown was never really in trouble, except for when it tried to be more than the church and then insisted on staying more than the church rather Uh, then retreat a little bit, give up the world, and just be Christians gathered around the word again until the finances allowed you to do more again, which is always going to be in whose hands, right? Who's got the cattle on a thousand hills? Who's got all the money in his pocket? It's it's Jesus, in fact, right? There's never money problems in the church, ever. There's only doubt problems in the church. And so what I want us to be as a, as a congregation out of this series, looking at these couple of different congregations, is a congregation with just a, a, few le- a few less doubts, a bit more confidence. I don't mean stupid risks. I don't mean any of that kind of stuff. Step out in faith, do stupid things. No, I don't mean that. Um, 
But I do mean that as the swirling whirlwind of noise continues to batter us from every side, uh, I want us to believe that we have every capacity to stand beside the people of Antioch with a line of Christians uh, from here till Jesus gets back on the day of resurrection. Uh, Rockford, Illinois, in uh, 2,000 years, should Jesus tarry, uh, some preacher somewhere over in Arabia is telling uh, the history of the Church of Rockford. And it's not just about St. Paul's, but all the Christians here and how we survive another 2,000 years while the rest of the world maybe forgets. Because that's a real possible future. You're seeing it right before your eyes. There's a lot of places forgetting. There's a lot of places where you can't find preaching. You can't find good teaching. Uh, uh, well, we never have to be that place. It isn't about me. It is about us. It's about us in Jesus. It's about us in Jesus' word. It's about that word being what church is. Okay. So that's my hope. And Antioch, if you want to be inspired by something, I mean, Antioch was something I did not even remotely expect. I thought I would have to do a little study on the history of a kind of corner city in the Roman Empire. Oh, my goodness, was I wrong. Father, tell me the story of Antioch. Well, how much time you got? Because it starts with was something called uh, the Diadochi Wars, which sounds kind of cool, I think, right? The Diadochi Wars, which you, you haven't heard of, but you've probably kind of heard of. The Diadochi Wars is a series of wars between like 12 to 15 different armies, generals, all who had formerly served Alexander the Great. And uh, Alexander the Great, Alexander Magos, uh, was this man, if you haven't heard, who changed the world by more or less taking backwards Macedonian Greece, conquering Greece, and then conquering Persia, which was like the, the, the empire of the world at that time. And he does all of this, Alexander, by the time he's in his late 20s. Um, he also has, though, his father's kingdom and armies behind him. His father, Philip, is dead. He has all the generals who fought these Grecian wars with him. And they get so far that they, I mean, they conquer everything. There's really almost nothing left to conquer. And then he, and then he dies. Uh, but in the meantime, he had set up a system of governance for the entire empire. He had done a little bit of work before he died. And the system of governance borrowed from something called the satrapy system, which was how Persia already ran everything in Persia, was through satrapies. Uh, a satrap, sort of like a governor, right? They're over a province, if you think of it that way. So Alexander has been portioning out healthy satrapies to the generals who've helped him conquer the world. And there's quite a few of them. Um, th there are in the story then three who are famous, three who are not so famous. And all of this, I haven't used a name yet because you've never heard of almost any of these guys. <laughs> right? uh, even the most famous one, which is the point of the story today for the sake of Antioch, like his, it's a name I've said before, so you might have heard it, but you haven't remembered it. There's a really good chance. Yeah? Um, and this is what kind of blew me away was, was that guy's name and story as it gets to Antioch. In any case, without spending too much time in the weeds on any of that, here's kind of what happened. So you got the world of the Mediterranean run by these Greek upstarts, generals, each in their various positions, 20 plus of them all over, right? As far away as like almost to India, all the way to almost to Spain, right? They're all over. And as soon as Alexander dies, whatever the story of his death goes, they begin knocking off the guy next to them if they can and taking the territory. That's the Diadochi Wars. 
And it all comes down to, again, three guys who are famous, three guys who are not so famous, and what happens to them. But uh, I'm going to kind of summarize their stories here now. Uh, one guy who's absolutely unknown starts it all in one sense. His name is Perdiccas. And Perdiccas is the satrap of Babylon, which means that he got the palace that they all wanted. Okay? Like when Alexander went and conquered everything, his goal was to get to Babylon and sit on that throne. Right? So Perdiccas has got it all already compared to everybody else, even though everyone's got big tracks of, you know, Galatia, right? Uh, So things like that. Perdiccas uh, then decides that he, in fact, is really ultimately going to be in charge. And the way he does this is is two ways. Uh, First, uh, he tries to marry Alexander the Great's sister, which if you'll go check out 1 Kings chapter 1 sometime, you'll see Solomon understood what that meant. Uh, And and then uh, the second thing is he begins to form alliances against Antigonus, who's a guy up basically where Turkey is now, who's beginning to take over his neighbors, right? So he, he begins to form a coalition against Antigonus's work way over there, knocking off some of the other weaker generals. Well, this leads to a guy named Seleucus, who is Perdiccas's general. He's not a satrap. He doesn't have a satrapy. I think the story goes he would rather support Perdiccas. He had joined Perdiccas' satrapy because he's like, I follow this guy. He kills Perdiccas. He kills Perdiccas. Uh, Perdiccas and Antigonus, though, are, are still kind of at this almost war. That war continues, and guess what? Seleucus loses to Antigonus and has to flee from Babylon. This general who had served Alexander the Great served this other uh, uh, general of Alexander's as a satrap, becomes a satrap, and is beaten by Antigonus, who is the guy. He's taken over this. He's taken over that. He looks like the monster right now. You ever play Risk and one guy's winning and all three join up to fight back? That's what happens to Antigonus, okay? Um, But meanwhile, Seleucus is running away to the east until he sends an envoy down to Egypt where there's this other guy who's pretty famous. He's one of the famous ones you've never heard of. His name is Ptolemy. Uh, and Ptolemy and Egypt's going to go all the way, as their story, all the way to a woman named Cleopatra and a guy named Mark Antony. Uh, that's the Ptolemaic Empire. Um, leave that to the side, though. Seleucus gets some aid from Ptolemy. Uh-huh. You know how sometimes you give aid to rebels and they become your enemies, America? You ever had that happen? Uh, it happened to Ptolemy. Okay, so he helps Seleucus come back and overthrow Antigonus, and Seleucus goes cutthroat and just conquers everything except for three places Egypt, where the Ptolemaics are able to kind of hold on that little strip of land, the Sinai Peninsula. It's hard to get in and conquer that place, okay? Um, and especially if you're in Babylon right? Like, like Seleucus is. Uh, and then he goes up and he basically takes over everything Antigonus had so that all of Asia Minor, Turkey, modern day Turkey, is part of Seleucus's empire now, the Seleucid empire, okay? Um, and the old, except for one little corner, okay? On Turkey's map, one little corner right on the coastland, there's a city that kind of has the ability to stop the Seleucid Empire from taking over. The city is the city of Pergamum. You've heard of Pergamum. It's in the Bible too. Uh, Pergamum, its story is that one of the other generals, whose name I won't mention because no one needs to remember it right now, um, he is also betrayed by one of his lower generals. That lower general is the 
a king, the ruler of the city of Pergamum, and he, after that greater general, gets offed by Seleucus, and so the, the territory shrinks, right? He keeps his piece of the pie. He never lets go. And the kingdom of Pergamum lasts all the way up until uh, the, I think it's Attalus III of the Adelid dynasty, finally on his deathbed, um, leaves it in his will to Rome. Because, frankly, he thinks no one else is going to run it well. And so they're running everything pretty well. He leaves it to Rome. He'd already paid taxes for years, right? He was a puppet king by this point. But, but that's that little corner of Pergamum that Seleucus doesn't get. And then Antigonus. Remember Antigonus? He was the big fight bad guy they get up on. He stays in the game all the way to almost the end. He just only gets Greece. Remember, he had Turkey. He takes Greece, he loses Turkey, he stays in Greece, and the Antigonid dynasty will, will last for quite a while, actually. It will eventually collapse in corruption and then just get conquered by Rome from the west, as opposed to the kingdom of Pergamum being ceded to Rome by its king, um, the Ptolemaic Empire uh, being conquered by Julius Caesar when he finally beats Mark Antony. It's a good story. You should check it out sometime. Um, and then you have uh, those things, and then, then Persia. Persia still is there, only it's not Persia. It's Grecian Persia. It's Hellenized Persia. It's the Seleucid Empire. Okay, all of this is to get to the point that this guy Seleucus then, after the big fights in 301, 302 BC, 300 years before Jesus, when he's really getting control, he's like, okay, I've got an empire. I'm going to keep fighting and expanding, but what do I want to do with my toys? I'm going to found two cities, meaning like literally go there and make cities with money that I'll spend. Huh? And, and one of them is called Seleucia. You figure Seleucus found Seleucia by the sea. It's kind of uh, in Turkey, southeast Turkey, on the coast of the sea, still there. Um, he builds a harbor. He wants to have a new trade center for his empire. Makes sense. But then he founds another city just up the way, not by water, though, but off of another strip of water that goes the other direction called the Tigris River. That city he names Antigonia after his wife. Um, but Antigonia and, uh, and uh, Seleucus will have some sons, and they'll have some sons, and one of them is going to be named Antiochus. And then Antiochus is going to have a son named Antiochus, and he's going to have a son named Antiochus, and he's going to have a son named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You should have heard of that guy by now if you read the book of Daniel. Uh, but somewhere in all of this, Antigonia becomes Antioch. And through the very thrust of all of it, even though Seleucia is the harbor, Antioch becomes, remains, and is for 300 years the capital of the empire that rules the world. It only stops being that place about 100 years before Paul and Barnabas get there. So it's kind of like if you can imagine one generation removed from Washington, D.C. being the capital. What happens in that 40 years after D.C. is not the most influential city on the planet? still exists, but not influential anymore. What's it like there? Well, it kind of depends on how good the empire really is in some ways too, right? I mean... I know D.C. is not the safest place. What's that say about the empire? You could go off on a million tangents, but just see that Antioch is not a back corner of anything. And in 63 B.C., when Pompey will conquer this area and make it part of the Roman world, 
Antioch remains the capital of the Roman province of Syria uh, all the way until the end of the Roman Empire. Putting it interestingly, for the, for the record, uh, in competition with Damascus for like real power in the area. Damascus is the ancient capital of Syria. Right? But Antioch actually exceeds Damascus in both population and influence. Population, 250,000. Rockford, I, I, we're, not, we're not there. Bigger Rockford, by a good stretch. Yeah, um, uh, uh, closer to, oh, I looked it up, but now I'm going to lose it. I don't want to lie. I had like three cities to give you. Huge, huge places by comparison to here. Um, so that, and then it's got interest from all over the world, even after the Romans conquer it, because it's now with Babylon, the seat of Persia. And Persia is what everyone's after, because that's the spice road. It's the silk trail. It's where the money is. Yeah, you get to India, which the Seleucid Empire bordered with India. Yeah. Uh, so as soon as the Romans have this, this place is still very, very what they're after. And then, okay, Herod the Great gets involved. This guy puts in the center of town, can you imagine two-thirds of a city block long, 10-foot high, 30-foot wide, with a 30-foot high roof and columns, all marble walk. Can you even picture it? This place was wealthy, like you can't imagine. All right, for the sake of time, jumping ahead. You heard in Acts chapter 11 how in this place where there are Jews and Hellenists, remember, Jews in the New Testament means Jews who speak Aramaic and look like Jews, whereas Hellenist means Jews who speak Greek and look like Greeks, but still believe the Bible. Okay? Uh, there's both groups there, and amongst the Hellenists particularly, these refugees from Jerusalem persecution and converts from Cyprus start a church. They're teaching the Word of God, they're confessing the Word of God, they're telling people about the Word of God, and they want to hear more, and they get together, and they begin meeting to study the Word of God. Jerusalem hears about this. They're kind of excited about this. They send Barnabas right away, right? That's what we just heard, read a moment ago. Here we go. The story, as the Bible tells it from that point on, is going to go at Acts chapter 12, verses 24 and following. If you would like to follow along, you can, or I'm just going to read a bunch to you. Um, Acts chapter 12 uh, is going to start in your pew Bible on page 921. Again, verse 24. It's the very end of the chapter. <laughs> Where it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so after Paul and Barnabas go down with that, uh, that gift for Jerusalem, do you remember this part? Uh, because there's a famine, they send some money down after a few years. While they're there, Peter's arrested by Herod and put in prison and let out by angels and leaves. All that stuff we looked at a couple weeks ago. They come back to Antioch with this guy, John Mark. Now there were, it says, chapter 13, verse 1, at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, we know him, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
So all those guys are famous so far as the New Testament church is concerned. We don't know a ton about them. There are traditional stories. I won't chase that rabbit today, but just those are all fascinating people. Uh, while they were worshiping these people named the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, oh, you know this city now, don't you? They went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And then Antioch kind of recedes from the picture uh, until you get to uh, uh, Antioch in Pisidia in verse 13, right on the same page. Just look at that. We're not going to read it. Different place. Don't get confused. Antioch in Pisidia is far away. Antioch in Syria will come back in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 28, uh, where it says, this is page 923, uh, when they had preached the gospel to that city, this is Derby um, or Lystra, uh, Derby and Lystra, yeah. Uh, when they had preached the gospel in Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, that's the not the one we're talking about, that's the other one, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the word they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples as the end of his first missionary journey. Uh, there is then this council that happens in Jerusalem with a big argument over circumcision, but Peter, Paul, and James all agree, and grace wins. Antioch comes back after the council in Acts chapter 15, verse 30 through 40. This is on page 924 of your pew Bible. So when they were sent off, verse 30, uh, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered a letter, the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So following the counsel and the decision that you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian, Paul and Barnabas take that letter back to Antioch. A bunch of other preachers rejoice, pray over it, study it, and then take off to tell everybody about it. But Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch till Paul decides second journey to go back and visit the old churches. Um, uh, we won't go through all of that, but he finishes all of that and gets back to Antioch again in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Uh, this will be starting on page 927 of your Pugil Bible, where it says, uh, after this, 
uh, this is in Corinth, I believe. Uh, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. Yeah, what cities in Syria? Antioch, right? And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Chantria, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus. First time at Ephesus, not a big church there yet. He'll come back in his third journey. They came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. That's at Jerusalem then. And then went down, downhill, but north, to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Uh, that's the beginning of his third journey. Antioch is done as a congregation, but it's not done in the story. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, after his third journey on the way back to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested, uh, he goes on a farewell tour and he runs into a guy whose name you've heard, Agabus, who was a prophet from Antioch, who comes from Antioch to talk to, talk to Paul. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, page 930. And when he, we, Paul and Luke, had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found the ship crossing to Phoenicia, we, set, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Again, he's from Antioch. And came to us, uh, coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people then urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Our time is, is really at an end here, but you see how Paul follows in the footsteps of Christ toward the tomb now. He's running toward the tomb. Antioch brings him into the ministry. He spends his life and career doing these amazing things. Antioch just continues to see the growth of the word of God in their midst. And, and it's all about running toward the tomb. Uh, after the apostles, Antioch will remain a major seat of Christianity up to today. I mentioned that earlier. 
famous names, Ignatius of Antioch and the Trinitarian controversies, they stand firm. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom, the golden mouth, is a missionary from Antioch to Constantinople. In 363, a major earthquake will destroy the entire city. It'll be, get rebuilt by the Byzantine emperors, changing the flavor, but keeping it central to the Byzantium Empire and its thoughts. Uh, in the year that the Council of Nicaea happens, there's also a council at Antioch, probably dealing with the same issues. Uh, in 637, it's conquered by the jihadist swords of Islam, but Christians remain there all the way through the Crusades, all the way through the Ottoman Empire to today. You can still go and visit, if you want, Turkish Antakya, uh, a city of 200,000 people today. Uh, again, uh, the hope in this series you just believe that same spirits right here among us in you going out there today and driving you back to more word together in a week. In the name of Jesus, amen.